Thank you, thank you. You have your Bibles or devices, whatever it is, upon which you are looking at God's Word. Find your place with me in Mark chapter 12. Mark's Gospel chapter 12. We have been on this journey through the Gospel of Mark now for some time. We find ourselves today in chapter 12. We are in the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, we are in, in, in Passion Week, what it's known as. Uh, on Sunday of that week, he rode into town, curse slash cleanse the temple. Uh, on Monday, uh, he went back, did some teaching. And this passage here probably takes place, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, he rode into town Sunday, looked around, saw it, went, took a nap, came back Monday, curse, cleanse. This is probably Tuesday as he comes back the next day. Uh, these uh, proceedings in Mark chapter number 12. How am I sounding to y'all? Am I hot? We're good? Okay. Yeah, one woman in here said, yeah, you are hot. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. All right. I know the rest of them were thinking it. They just didn't say it. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Mark chapter number 12. Jesus uh, still in the temple, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, by the way. Why are we ascending church? Because God is a sending God, right? All right. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying... They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not in Scripture the stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, that is, the religious leaders to whom he spoke, they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. Well, you know, we just have a propensity that comes naturally to us and that propensity is to take a good situation and make a mess out of it. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it seems that some people are, are, are more proficient at it than others. I mean, I know people that you can literally set them up in life, set the ball on a tee, and somehow or another, they're going to mess it up and just take it in a direction that it really was not supposed to go and end up making a mess out of their life and the situation as well. And boy, that's the situation that we find ourselves in as human beings. 
And as I look at this parable, I can't help but to look at this and see some larger context as well. I am by no way, by no means a, a God and country type of preacher, but boy, I can't help but looking at this and kind of inserting the United States of America right in the midst of this parable. But let's be even a little bit more personal. I can't help but look at the church today in the United States of America and kind of insert us right into this and it's almost as if Jesus was speaking it to us as well. So the application is not only national, it's not only to the local church, it's not only to us. Man, this is something that applies almost across the board. Now before we get started, let's make sure that we understand the symbolism that's included here. So let's walk through this parable and, and see what we can pull out and, and what analogy or what is it that Jesus is trying to communicate because He's been teaching plainly and these guys didn't get it. So now He, revert, he reverts to a story form of teaching where something represents something else and guess what? They got it, Dane. There's just something about a story that you just can't miss the meaning. And this is one of those stories. So notice, he talks about a man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat uh, under the wine press, built a tower, rented out vine groves, and went on a journey. Who's the man represent? That's God. Okay? Who are the vine growers? Well, in this particular circumstance, in this particular parable, it's the leaders, the religious leaders, or we could widen it and say it's the nation of Israel. So we see here that God has prepared something for them. And of course, Israel throughout Scripture is referred to as a vineyard, as a fig tree, as uh, several other analogies. So we know that He's talking about them. So now let's look at this because we can see here that Boy, uh, God has indeed done some things. He set the ball on a tee for us, especially as it relates to spiritual things. I mean, how can anybody mess it up after everything that God has done for us to make sure that we get it and wind up where we're supposed to be it seems that there's a lot of folk walking around today and if they're not verbalizing it out plainly, at least they are saying by their actions, excuse me, can you tell me how to get to hell from here? I mean, do, do you know anybody like that? And usually you don't have to look too far around to find somebody that seems to be asking that question because they're hell-bent on being hell-bound no matter what God has done in order to prevent it. So now, let's look at that, and, and, and you can apply it however you want to. I mean, it's easy to apply it to somebody else, but you know it might be hitting a little bit close to home today, so don't dismiss yourself from this particular parable. Notice what it is. How is it that you can get to hell from here. What do you have to do to get to hell from the United States of America and more specifically what do you have to do to get to hell from Bonifay, Florida? Well these guys did a pretty good job at blazing a trail for us. 
And all we got to do is follow the trail that the leaders of Israel blazed for us. So let's walk through this thing step by step and see how it is. Look at the road marks. Look at the signs that we have to pass in order to get to hell. By the way, you know, directions have always been a point of contention between men and women. Do you know that? Hey, can I say to you that Google Maps and Siri has helped our relationship immensely as we go on a trip together. Because here's what women are always saying, or what they used to always say. Will you just stop and ask somebody? No, I'm not going to stop and ask somebody. Now, now we don't even have to have that discussion. We just say, hey, Siri, where is so-and-so? And lo and behold, there it comes right up on your phone. So it's almost as if folk are asking Siri, Siri, where is hell? How can I get there from here? What do you have to do to find it from here? Number one, to get to hell from here, you have to misunderstand your good situation. Mark it down. You've got to misunderstand your good situation. Now guys, I want to tell you, I just absolutely have no sympathy, no respect for any professional athlete that can get on TV and kneel down during the national anthem of the United States of America and then have the gall to talk about folk don't have a chance to make it here after he just signed a $6.7 million contract this week to play ball. Where would you like me to take you on this planet? Just name the place and I'll buy you an airplane ticket and fly with you to get there to see if you can do that anywhere else but right here. And sit here and complain and whine. You are in a good situation. I don't care what bad circumstances you may be in temporarily. Everybody in this country is in a good situation. Are you with me? And son, to say that we're not in a good situation and to protest and burn down cities is to thumb your nose, thumb your nose in the face of Almighty God and almost demand that He give you more than what, you, what He's already done. My goodness, we have a good situation. And we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. But we do it. We do it. We do it. Hey, we have taken a good situation that God gave us. We have turned freedom of religion into freedom from religion. Have you noticed that? Hey, we have taken... Uh, we have gone from having the Bible read in school to having it banned from school. And we wonder why schools are being shot up by idiots today. Huh? Now look, I gotta go, I don't want to get on this stump because I'm really not God and country. I gotta, I gotta run. I gotta pull myself away from this. But you just suffice it to say, we got a good situation here, brothers and sisters. We do. I don't care who you are, where you are, what you are. We've got a good situation in the United States of America. God has been good to us. Now, if you don't believe that, let me take you to where Dane just described. And it's amazing that some of those people down there in horrific circumstances have more joy than we do here in the United States of America living in the lap of luxury. To get to hell from here, you've got to misunderstand your good situation. And make no situation. God has set it on a tee for us. He has. Now notice what happens when you misunderstand your good situation. First thing that happens when you misunderstand your good situation, then you think you're the owner. These folk didn't understand that they were hired, rented sharecroppers. They didn't own a thing. 
But all of a sudden, they had this owner's mentality, this vineyard is ours. No, it's not. Hey, do you understand that you really don't own one thing in this life? You're not the owner of it. You know, Heather and I got a little farm in Troy, and I'm, every time I walk around, every, every day I'm on that place, I'm amazed that I'm there. But do you know what? This thought occurred to me the other day, I don't own that place. I just happen to have the rights to it for a little while. I don't own it at all. How can you own dirt? That's God. That belongs to God. I don't own that. And it goes that way for everything. You don't own anything. Whatever you have belongs to God. It does. Hear me. You know that, that oxygen that's in your lungs right now? Spit it out. It's not yours. No, it's not. It's God's. He's the one that made it. He's just letting you use it for a little while. There's not one thing that we own that is ours. If you don't believe it, what do you think you're going to take out of here when you leave? Nothing. You know why? Because it's not yours. It's going to stay. And look, these guys developed this mentality that they were the owner of it. When they weren't, God was the owner. And let me show you how I know God was the owner. Because this parable tells us that God spared no expense. Hey, out by the side of these, uh, this series of points right here, write this word down, provisions. Provisions. Look at everything God provided. Notice what he, what he did. Look, number one, He planted a vineyard. They didn't plant it. He did. We didn't create this world. He did. No matter what it is you've got, it doesn't belong to you. Ultimately, it's God's. It really is. Look, he spared no expense. He planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He ensured that it would be protected. Now, man, I could get on my God and country stump again just a little while. You know, because God did give us some protection at one time. And I remember Billy Graham, before he died, said, God is beginning to take the wall of protection down around from the United States of America. And he really is. But it's not going to be an outside enemy that flies jets into World Trade Center towers that destroys us. It's going to be foolish folk who are saying, how can we turn this good situation into a living hell? Notice, he, 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 he put a wall around it. Look what else he did. He dug a vat under the wine press. Look what else he did. He built a tower. All of this is what the man did who represents God God spared no expense. I mean, look, he didn't cut corners. He wasn't no South Mississippi farmer <laughs> that tried to skimp and not invest. No, no. He invested in what he had and spared no expense because he is the owner. The vine growers didn't do it. It wasn't theirs. They just walked into this thing that was set up on a tee for them to be profitable and make a harvest. Check out the next thing. When you misunderstand your good situation, you'll think you're the owner. God has spared no expense, proving that God is the owner. Number two, God has reasonable expectations. Look what he did. He sent a guy back uh, in, in, in verse number two in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard. Can I just say this? You know, God does expect something from us. He does. God has expectations. He has invested in me. He's invested in you. He has spared no expense. 
Therefore, he is expecting a return on his investment. So he sent to receive some of what was rightfully his. And notice, God doesn't even want all of it. It all belongs to him. He just wanted some return on his investment. God expects production out of you and out of me. Bottom line, we can't get around it. He expects us to be fruitful. Now, notice number next because we've got to run. You have to misunderstand your good situation. If you do that, you're going to begin to think you're the owner. Even though God spared no expense, and God has reasonable expectations. Now, years ago I heard this story about... about, Because I'm not saying that we have a perfect situation. I'm saying we have a good situation. Are you with me? I mean, it ain't perfect just by virtue of the fact you and I are involved in it. Huh? But we do have a good situation. I heard the story of this, uh, of this farm cat. I mean, this, this uh, yeah, a farm cat and a bird. They lived around the, uh, this uh, uh, cattle barn, and the old songbird just had time of his life, had everything it needed right there around that cattle barn. I mean, you know how cows are. They drop more grain than they eat, than they swallow. So he had plenty to eat, had water trough, had place to sleep. Everything was right for the bird. And one night, the bird flew up on his perch on a tree outside the barnyard, went to sleep. He didn't realize it, but that night, freezing temperatures hit the barnyard. The bird woke up next morning, and he was sitting on a limb, and his wings were stuck to him. He couldn't move his wings. He tried to sing, but there was ice on his beak. He couldn't even open his mouth to sing. And he didn't know what he was going to do. And in trying to free his wings, his foot slipped on ice on a branch, and he fell straight into the barnyard. And he was just laying there looking up thinking, it's over with. About that time, a big old Guernsey cow comes waddling in the barn. She doesn't even see the bird on the ground. She gets over the bird, twisting the story. She lifts her tail and drops a big old cow pie right on top of the bird. (laughs) So the bird thinks, how can it get any worse? I've nearly froze to death. Now I've got a cow pie on top of me. But guess what? It was fresh cow pie. You know what that means? It was warm. So the warmth that cow pie warmed the bird up. Lo and behold, his wings popped up. His mouth was able to sing, so he said, I'm feeling pretty good. So he stuck his head out of the cow pie and began to sing a beautiful barnyard song. About that time, the old cat woke up in the barn. And he heard the bird singing, and he jumped down out of the loft onto the cow pie and ate the bird up. Moral of the story. If you're warm and happy, even though a little crap falls on you every now and then, keep your mouth shut. Yeah. (laughs) Keep your mouth shut. You've got a good situation here. Don't mess it up, all right? Now here we go. Y'all with me for the rest of this thing now? (laughs) Notice, (laughs) how can you get to hell from here? Number one, you have to misunderstand your good situation. Number two, you have to mistreat God's servants. You've got to mistreat God's servants. Out beside this point, I want you to write this word. Write the word P. 
patience. Patience. Because look what God did represented by the landowner. He sent a slave, verse number 2, to the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse number 4, again he sent another slave, wounded him in the head, treated him shamefully. Number, verse number 5, sent another and they killed him. Look at verse number 5. So with many others, beating some and killing others. Write down the word patience. How many messengers does God have to send before we finally get it? Man, He has sent to... These represent, by the way, the prophets in Israel whom He sent one after another, after another, after another. And they beat them, they killed them, they sawed them in two. They did all of these types of things. But wait, let's, let's bring it home, can we? Can I say to you today that the local church in the United States of America is a pastor-killing factory? Nathan, am I preaching or, or am I... The church in the United States of America has a good situation. But yet we are pastor killing manufacturing plants. That's what we are. This week, this week, two of my friends resigned from pastorate. I've got one more who's planning to resign today. They're resigning with no place to go. They just can't take it anymore. They have been beat to hell and back. Pardon my French. By the local church. One of the last times I was out at Grace, I went to a church and I heard one of my friends preach. And he preached a message out of 1 Peter and it was a great message on how to endure persecution when the world persecutes you. And after the message, I told him, I said... Great, great message, man, but i got a question for you. He said, what is that? I said, what do you do when it's not the world that persecutes you, but it's the church? Because I want to tell you, I've been in ministry for 31 years, and can I just say to you that the wounds that I still carry around didn't come from an atheist, didn't come from a godless pagan. They came from the people of God. We just have a propensity to kill and eat up and destroy pastors. And can I also be as bold as to say, we have had two wounded pastors in our pulpit in the past month. You didn't know this, but let me tell you why I bring them here. I, every now and then, I'll bring some pastor friends that I know and ask them to come and preach, and I have ulterior motives when I do that. I bring them to let them experience a good church. Are you with me? Huh? You don't know this, Grace. But every time I bring a pastor in here, you bless them. You encourage them. You give them hope that there is still opportunity to have a God-honoring, pastor-loving church in the United States of America. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. You have, you have greatly encouraged men that I bring in here. I talked to Dr. John and I talked to Cliff this week and I said, you know, I think this is what God's doing. I think God is giving Grace Church a ministry to pastors who are getting beat up all over, the, all over the state of Florida and Alabama. He is. And Georgia. Thank you. That's exactly right. Man, what a ministry that is. 
Because I've got friends out there who are walking away because they can't take it anymore. And for me to be able to say, would you come and preach at Grace? And for you, just by being yourself, you didn't even know this until I just told you. But I trust you enough that I can bring folk in here and they're going to have an experience where God just ministers to their soul because all they want to do is be faithful to God in the context of a local church without every Tom, Dick, and Harry trying to shoot them in the back. Thank you, Grace, for being that. There is no telling what God will do to a church that ministers to His wounded servants out there. Did you know that? Because there's guys out there right now today being tarred and feathered for no reason at all. No reason at all except for doing a good job. And some people don't, don't like that. So man, thank you for being that type of church. And you know, folks say, well, wait a minute. I'm not mean to pastors. But here's another way you beat pastors up. You know how you do that? Just by being slothful in your church attendance. You do. Hey, here, here's what pastors do. They start on Monday morning preparing a meal for the people whom they, God's put in their charge to feed next Sunday. Hey, how would you like to start preparing a physical meal on Monday morning for folks who are going to show up at your house on Sunday and you've got this spread laid out, you started on Monday and nobody shows up? That'd break your heart, wouldn't it? Here's what the proverb says. The proverb says... He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. So watch me. If you're slothful in your spiritual disciplines and in your church attendance, you might as well be with that deacon who hates the pastor and is trying to put his head on a platter. Because you're equal with him according to the Proverbs. So can I just say this? I know we live cast every Sunday morning. Let me, let me look right out there and talk to our Facebook audience for a little while. If you are at home watching Grace Church on Facebook and you are an able-bodied person whom God has placed in a good situation, get your sorry hattie up and get down to your local church, if not for the Lord, to encourage your pastor and stop beating him up. Thank you, Grace Church, because there's a lot of places I said that I'd have got stoned. I'm just telling you. And there's a lot of times you notice every now and then I say something and I kind of I do that because I've had so many rotten tomatoes thrown at me before while I was preaching. But thank you that you don't do that. <laughs> that just goes to prove that God is going to use you to minister to some of these guys because pastors are hurting out there. So how do I get to hell from here? Number one, you've got to misunderstand your good situation. Number two, you've got to mistreat God's servants. Number three, you have to murder God's son. Now, out beside this, I want you to write the word insanity. Because we have seen the, pr the provisions of God with those first truths. We saw the patience of God in sending servant after servant after servant. And now we see the insanity of God. You know why? I, I couldn't come up with any other word called Seth insane. Put yourself in that landowner's position. They've done beat and they've done killed a dozen of your servants. You got one left. He's your only beloved son. Are you going to send him? Ain't no way, Jack. Ain't no way I'm sending my son. They've beat, they've killed my servants. 
You see, it was insane of God to send His Son for me and for you. Can I just worship Him a little while this morning and say, God, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that for my sorry hide. I would not have. You see, God doesn't owe us anything contrary to popular belief. He doesn't owe us anything. Anything that we get that's less than hell is grace. God didn't have to send His Son. That was insane. It was a plan that you just think, my goodness, why God? They've murdered all your servants. They're going to kill your son too. And guess what? It's exactly what we did. Exactly what we did. Notice I say we, not them. Because let me tell you what happened. It wasn't just those guys who physically put the nails in his hand that killed him. You know who it was? It was me and it was you because of our sin. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. So how do you get to hell from here? You've got to murder God's son. And watch, there's only two options here. We're narrowing this thing down. As it relates to the blood of God's son, the blood of God's son is either on your hands and you are guilty of murder. How would you like to stand before God? God the Father with the blood of His Son dripping off of your hands. What do you think He's going to say to you? So there's only one or two options. The blood of His Son is either on your hands or get this. This is the happy part. Or it's been applied to your heart. Huh? And son, when it's applied to your heart, you've got not only clean hands, you've got a clean heart. Your sin is no more. God throws it as far as east is from west. He casts it behind His back. He buries it under the sea. He remembers it no more. That's what happens when God's Son applies His blood by faith to your heart. You're no longer a murderer. Now you're a co-heir. You're joint heir. You are adopted into the family. You're a child of God. How can you mess that one up and miss this one? Come on. How do we get to hell from here? Misunderstand your good situation, mistreat God's servants, murder God's son, and finally you have to misread God's scripture. You got to misread the book. And I'm amazed how much of that is there is of that out there. People who take the book and totally miss it. Turn it into something that it's not. We call that heresy, by the way. And son, there's a lot of that out there. Are you with me? Check this out. Notice what happens when you misread the Scripture. When you misread the Scripture, number one, you miss the key component of life. The key component of life. It doesn't matter what you've got, who you are, if you miss this, you miss the key ingredient that God intended for human beings to have in life. You know what that key component is? Jesus Christ. Check it out. Look what he said. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Now watch this. I love this. It took a builder to really help me understand this. Cliff, just the other morning in Sunday school, this, this was quoted again in his text. He made the analogy of expert builders who are looking at stones to put them in place in a precision place because the stability 
and how a building is square is dependent upon those stones. These architects have in mind what kind of stone they want. So here God sends the stone, the perfect stone of Jesus Christ. They look at it and according to their specifications, it failed the test and they threw it in the boneyard. Stones that couldn't be used at all in this building. Now here's the thing. They scrutinized it according to their specifications. And can I say to you that I know a lot of folk today that are doing the same thing with Jesus Christ. I hear folks say things like this, because this is what we do. We, we read the scripture and we take out the parts that are good and pleasing to us and palatable, and we take the parts that we don't like and we kind of reject them. It doesn't meet our specifications. And I hear folks say some things like this, well, my God would never do anything like that. Well, maybe your God is one that you've made up and fabricated in your mind. And it's not the God of the Bible. Huh? I mean, I heard somebody the other day just say, and it was in relation to a hurricane. Oh, God didn't send that storm. Well, excuse me, who the heck's in control of this universe? I had rather say that God is sovereign and He's in control of everything then I had the other proposition, which is to say, God is a weak, measly imbecile who can't control his own creation and it's spinning out of control and some things are happening that he don't even know about. That's what you got to say if you say God's not sovereignly in control. God would never say, nothing bad comes from my God. Well, can I read to you some scripture in Isaiah that says this? God says, if calamity befall the city, did I not the Lord send it? He says, if evil befalls a city, did not I, the Lord, send it? How do you hide that? huh? This is what else he said in, in Isaiah. He said, I am Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one who creates well-being and calamity. So it doesn't matter what situ the situation is in your life. God is sovereignly in control. And if you miss that, you will miss the key component of life. Do not reject Jesus. Don't reject the scripture just because it don't meet your specification. You know, God's never ran anything by me to see if I, I approved of it. And if you think he does that to you, you are severely misreading the scripture. He doesn't. He sets the standard and says, here it is. And you've got to conform to it. And He doesn't expect you to do that on your own. He does that by grace, helps us by grace. So here's what they did. They took the key component because that cornerstone is what's going to hold this entire building and they rejected it. Is it any wonder that your life falls apart when you have rejected the key component of human life? And that's Jesus Christ. Not only when you, miss, when you misread God's Scripture do you miss the key component of life, but then you ignore the conviction of the Spirit as well. Look at this in this text. I want you to see this in verse number 12. For they understood that He spoke the parable against them. Watch me. Anytime you understand God's Word well enough for it to make you mad, that was the divine conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. Because He's the only one that can take our darkened mind 
and illumine our heart enough to understand God's Word. And if you understood it enough to get mad, you ought to thank the good God of heaven that He was merciful enough to even speak to you. Sorry, honey. Huh? I mean, that's just the way it is. But yet so many folk today who are living in a good situation come to church and they want to be coddled and held and told how good they are and want to leave with the warm and fuzzies. If that was our goal, we all do like J.I. Packer said, take these chairs out and we'll put in hot tubs everybody set in. When you leave, you will feel good and warm and fuzzy. Huh? I mean, come on. God's Word is sharpening us. It's cutting things out of our life. It's building us up. And that requires sometimes a little pain. But yet folk in the United States of America have it so good that when God's Word cuts, they get mad and walk out and leave. When you misread God's Scripture, hey, you're going to miss the key component of life and you're going to ignore the conviction of the Spirit. When that takes place, then you are consigned to judgment. Congratulations, you just found hell from here. Am I right? Check out what Jesus said. Verse number 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those vine growers and he will give the vineyard to others. Now look, you've rejected the chief cornerstone. It's no problem. Go ahead and reject. But you're not the only show in town. God will give grace to somebody else who will take that stone as the key component of their life. He will build them up. He will display their glory. He will use them for His glory. And they will be the most blessed person in Bonifay, Florida. So I can walk away if I want to. Doesn't deter God in one bit. He'll just take what was mine and give it to somebody else. Grace Church, listen to me. He can do that to us if we don't look out. All the grand plans that He has before us, He can take and give them to somebody else. But look here. When you miss the key component of life, and you ignore the conviction of the Scripture, which is what these guys did, they, they understood with full knowledge that He was talking against them. And what did they do? They got mad. They left and went away. Hey, if that's not Southern Baptist, I don't know what is. Huh? Get mad and go away. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> Here's the takeaway. And I'm winding this thing up. Here's the takeaway. Are you ready? Because all parables have one major takeaway. You know that. Here's the takeaway. If we receive God's goodness, which we have, amen, but reject God's sovereignty and His Son, God's grace is exhausted. There is no more balm in Gilead. There's nothing else that God can do. There is no fount other than that which is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. There is nothing else God can do. He's done it all. So congratulations... You just found hell from Bonifay. Now, you know, here's what I love about my Google Maps and what I love about Siri. I can be so far turned around on the back roads of Pike County 
just outside Troy, Alabama, that I'm as lost as a small dog in tall weeds. Couldn't find my way back if I wanted to. All I have to do with my Google Maps and Siri is pull that thing up and there's a button on it that says go home. I hit that go home button and guess what she does? She gives me step-by-step -step directions and before long, I'm back at the Ponderosa. So let me hit go home from here, okay? Because I don't want to leave you in hell. That's <laughs> where these directions ended up, didn't they? How can I get to hell from here? So let's turn around and hit the go home button. How is it that I can turn this thing around, get out of here, and God get to where you want me? Well, let's start right here. Number one, you've got to understand that God has already been better to you than we deserve. Am I right? Here's what Paul says in Romans, Katie, Katie Dollar. He says in Romans chapter 2, verse number 4, For the goodness of God leads men to repentance. Hey, can you look in your life and see the goodness of God? And when you see the goodness of God, you know what it does? It doesn't cause you to protest. It doesn't cause you to get mad. It causes you to repent, to fall down and say, Thank you, God. You are better to me than I ever deserve. So we're getting home. Number one, understand your good situation. Number two, realize that God has sent person after person after person with the gospel message to you and you've been mistreating them, telling them you don't want to hear it. I'm never going to have anything to do with that. Stop that and start to listen. Number next, after you've listened, understand that you are guilty. You have murdered God's Son. And rather than standing before Him with blood on your hands, stand before Him with the blood of Christ applied to your heart by faith as a forgiven person. Believe the Scripture and let God build your life on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, you can take a good situation and turn it into a great situation. And not only will it last through this life, but you'll end up in eternity in a great, great, great situation. Would you stand with me please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And God, we just repent before you today and confess that we are pretty good at